This is the Design Goggles podcast on DNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Board and Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Board and Vellum. I live in the Old Ballard neighborhood and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled Ethical Design. When we think about design, we might not necessarily think about how many choices we make with every act of creation. Whether you're an architect, a graphic designer, or a UX programmer, By the end of a single design session, let alone an entire design project, hundreds, sometimes thousands of decisions have been made, and each one carries with it consequences for the real world. Seattle has one of the most vibrant creative communities in the country, and one of the most progressive, civically minded on top of that. These days especially, we are all taking a closer look, not only at what we can accomplish through design, but whether the creative decisions we make are right for everyone in Seattle and beyond. What role do ethics play in design? What does it mean to integrate ethics into the creative process? How do we understand the values attached and the consequences that each of our creative decisions have for the world? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Michael Ellsworth, co-founder and principal of Civilization, a design practice here in Seattle. Michael, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Thank you. So how long have you been in Seattle? I've been here since 2002, so 16 plus years. That's a while. Where did you move when you first got here? I moved to Inner Bay and I slept on some friend's couches or a friend's couch. And I was only supposed to be here a couple months. I was just checking it out. Had the worst job. Well, it was hard to find a job at that time. Oh, yeah. I moved here in January. So as you know, the Seattle freeze is deep. Sure. And uh, didn't meet very many people, but got a job at a car wash. Washing cars in the rain. In January. Yeah, it's quite the quintessential Seattle experience. Or I notice this every time I go to a car wash now in the rain. That there's so many people. And I get it. I get it. Lock eyes with that guy and they both do the nod. And you're like, oh, yeah. So where did you move from when you came to Seattle? I moved from Chicago. I grew up in a small town, Coal City, Illinois. Moved to Chicago to go to school, dropped out of school, traveled the country. Wish I would have traveled to Europe, but traveled on Greyhound and <laughs> lived in a couple places around the country. And then like I said, I came to Seattle as one of those other destinations, like, oh, see, check it out and just fell in love with it. And it was amazing at that time. It was like such a, a rich community. It took a minute to get into that community. But once I did, it was like all these amazing creators and artists and musicians. And I was a musician. And What were you doing as a musician? What were you playing? Oh, guitar, toy instruments. I was in a band with all toy nice. instruments. Uh, yeah. So it was just, you know, it felt really like the place for me. Did you study music when you were in school? I did. And then I dropped out because I was like, yeah, I'm probably not going to be a symphony director. <laughs> did your time traveling the country, does it influence you still in the work you do today? Absolutely. I mean, it really, it was an empathy builder, especially the way I traveled on, I was broke, but still very privileged to be a 20 year old white dude 
driving around in Greyhound, that's a very different segment of the population. Sure. I remember sitting next to this one guy whose house burned down that day. He had a garbage bag that just reeked of smoke. He was an older man, probably like in his 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. And I just sat with him through Kansas. You know, he lost it all. And he had nothing. And he was going to his daughter's house. That was just like, man, it only takes a second to lose it all. I was just, you know, just fancy and free kid. Just like, yeah. got my backpack going through the U.S. When did you feel like it was time to be somewhere? After I uh, lived in San Diego, did it for me. Huh. Hanging out on the beach, I was working for uh, Calperg, which was like the birthplace of the Nader's Calperg, Ralph Nader's. Uh, so I was a canvasser. So I'm going door to door getting signatures for, you know, great causes. Mm-hmm. Great purpose work, but, you know, you can only get told to get out of your face so many times a day. But then when I wasn't working, I was always, you know, trying to be creative at something. And I realized San Diego was too beautiful for that in a way. Like, I was just like, I'm just going to, like, be on the beach, like, all the time. I can't. This is not for me. I got to get out of here. And I didn't really realize that aspect of it as a decision to move to Seattle. But I think somehow those two things clicked. That's cool. We were just like too happy. You're just like, ah, I'm too content. Mind of the randomest thing. There was this, you know, Trent Reznor, the guy from Nine Inch Nails. There was this like period of just nothing happening in Nine Inch Nails history. And he had this random, some their first album had like an anniversary or something. And he was interviewed on TV and he was like randomly wearing slacks and a polo shirt. And he was just like, yeah, I don't know if things are going too well right now. I just can't like, <laughs> I can't like write anything. I have to be pretty angry to like put an album together. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. And eventually he got back there, I guess. But I feel like every creative person can relate to that a little bit. If things go too well, you just drop the pen. I'm just going to, I'm just going to do nothing for a little while. So you moved to dark, <laughs> dark, depressing gray all the time, Seattle, and got your, uh, got your mojo back. Yeah. We call that the, um, the dark times but in a good way. <laughs> yeah. it's, so it's like the, the months when it literally is dark at four, it's it's like it just is this little fueling station for being creative. The dark times are the creative times and you just lock yourself in and you don't even realize that you've been working on some design project for way too long. You maybe need to stand up and move around a little or something, but it's just, there's something about, about our light and maybe our lack thereof up here that makes it a whole lot easier to get creative about stuff than say a beach in San Diego, I feel like. Absolutely. And easier to sit in front of a machine or a piano or guitar or whatever yeah. it because I always get the fear of missing out on the sun. Draw a roadmap for us from you arrived to Seattle and then years later you co-found civilization. How did you get there? I'll give you the cliff notes. Okay. Car wash, roommates, needed my own place, moved into new place on Queen Anne. So it was the other okay. side, Inner Bay, Queen Anne, right by Sonic Boom. When it was Sonic Boom, right. before it was a Chase Bank. And it was amazing. Loved it. Record store, started collecting vinyl, started to make my life heavier that I'm not going to move. Right. Like, oh, I'm going to invest in the biggest, heaviest thing I could do. <laughs> Let's buy a bunch of records. Car wash wasn't really, you know, my life's aspiration. No, no. especially in the rain. But I would read The Stranger because, <laughs> you know, it wasn't very busy. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd uh, smoke copious amounts of wash cars and read The Stranger. I saw back then when there was want ads. Oh, remember those? Yeah, like we were hiring, blah, blah, blah. I get a big box, a cardboard box, and I put a giant heart balloon in the box, a helium heart balloon. I tie my pathetic resume (laughs) to that balloon and I send it to the address on the want ad. (laughs) Who posted the want ad? So it was the sales department, the ad sales department. Oh, 
okay. So they were hiring an ad salesperson. I was like, if any job, because I can't write, didn't have a camera, my graphic design chops were real not good because it's been years since I studied graphic design school too. So anyway, I was like, there's no way I'm going to get a designer. But you know what I can do is sell because on the road, my go-to job to make money, not only canvassing, telemarketing. So I had a little bit of experience with the telemarketing, pre-social media. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I understand. What <laughs> I get this gig. I got it. After many, many interviews, but we're very interested in the way I applied. Uh, get the gig. Totally just changed everything. Met my wife. We hated each other. Did you send her a heart balloon? Too? No. Uh, she couldn't stand me. I couldn't stand her. Uh, she oh my trained God, that me. really happened? This really happened. I feel like that's the thing no one <laughs> says really happens. Like in the movies, John and Jane hate each other for 40 minutes and then like are forced to work together in 90 minutes and then fall in love at two hours. And It was a lot longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get together till after she left. The stranger. She was already working there. She trained me on the job, did not like each other. She was like, why are you hiring this kid? Came in with a backpack. Like my job interview attire was not up to up to snuff. I think that was another reason for all the interviews. Uh, <laughs> so I had the stranger. I, I got a computer. A computer. I did not have a computer as a as a person moving here with the backpack. Uh, <laughs> so I had an Apple computer of all computers. And so I figured out how to borrow Photoshop. And Illustrator and like get my chops back. Um, so I started working and I realized while I was um, selling ads, the way I would sell ads is conceptualize the ads while I'm talking to my client who was an Indian restaurant on the Ave. Then I would end up designing the ad basically, sending it up to the design team who was not super cool with that. So that that started to compound. Then I started taking like some freelance work in my cubicle I was like, forget the sales stuff. I'm just going <laughs> to start doing this. Got to the point where it's like, um, you can't do this anymore, but we think you're great and maybe you should think about starting something. So that was like really amazing for me. That was like an amazing opportunity to like leave a place where I should have been like kicked out the door and <laughs> probably a lot earlier. Somebody from The Strangers listening to this. Like, oh, yeah. I knew it. <laughs> oh, they know that it. guy. <laughs> but out of the ashes of that was another studio. It was quite a journey. So I, I know because we, we've, we've chatted a couple times and Civilization is a very well-known place now. And it operates and exists in a very, very different space than a lot of graphic design, marketing firms, even UX companies. What, in your words, makes Civilization unique and different? The people. I mean, really, I know it's a, like a cliche answer, but our team was really put together in this organic way. I mean, I think that's a, to even kind of go back to the Seattle thing, like that's the beauty of the city. Maybe that's part of the way it's changed. It's harder for these organic connections to happen. No, there was this, this vibrant energy. So when my first debacle that happened, business foray, at the same time, uh, it was a gallery design firm. That was going. And Gabriel Stromberg, our current creative director, co-founder, collaborator, you know, he um, had a gallery at the same time. And he had a, I lived two blocks away from that gallery. And then we had a joint show. Him and I, you know, I was always like looking in the windows of his gallery and like looking at the work he was making. He was screen printing in the kind of the window. It was where uh, Indian Summer is now. And then when that business, the ashes started the new thing that was called Dumb Eyes. That was out of my apartment. My, my uh, girlfriend at the time, 
my wife now, and uh, our studio apartment, which sucked, but we were working there. We'd go to get coffee at Top Hot and walk by Gabriel every day. So it was always like, and then at the coffee shop, we would run into Sean Cardinal, who's now our lead web developer. So it was like, it was just this organic thing. And the whole team is kind of based on this kind of knowing each other for a long time, admiring each other's work. Other business partner lived a block away, Corey Gutch and co-founder. He was my girlfriend, best friend. And uh, he was in the band The Turn-Ons, and in bands, he was a musician. I was always a fan of what they were doing, and we would always hang out, and he worked at Adobe. Corey was like, oh, that's Corey. He's worked at Adobe forever. We have no idea what he does, but he works at Adobe. So we would start talking, and I was like, hey, I got this project. I got to make a website. Can you teach me how to make a website? So he comes over, and he starts teaching me how to make a website. And I'm like, hey, man, you got to do this. I'm not going to. This is not for me. (laughs) Like, (laughs) there's numbers and things? No. Um, No, thanks. So he he started, like, working with us, and then he became part. Uh, you know, Adobe time was ebb and flow and then he ended up leaving and yeah. So it it just kind of all happened in this, like the North Capitol area of summit and Belmont (laughs) (laughs) and Mercer and uh, Republican. You have your new place down on the, uh, in Pioneer square. Yeah. So we, yeah. And we, and we had, so out of the, yeah. Out of the apartment, we moved to this uh, on 15th across the street from you in, your, yeah. in the basement of your old building, yes. Borden Velm's old building. Yes. There's a dance studio and there's like a uh-huh. there's like a storage room in the back. And that was our space. And you couldn't go in or out when there was a dance thing happening, which yes. happens all the time. But there was a little escape hatch that you could crawl out of if you had to go to the bathroom. Songs will be sung. Legends will be told <laughs> about the things that happened in that building. Oof. And you mentioned before uh, coming full circle with the gallery space, your current place has a gallery space, which is, I think, what you're referring to. Yes, sorry. Uh, I had never thought about design and ethics in the same sentence ever before, actually, until I went to the first opening you guys had in your new space, Design of Descent. It was a fantastic opening, and I was walking through there, and that was the beginning of a sort of minor obsession. I was just like, wait a second, like, if this is possible, what are all of the things I hadn't considered up until this point? in everything I'd designed. A long time ago in a former life, I had done graphic design also. And I was just like, it it just kind of blew my mind a little bit. And it's kind of what kicked off this whole train of thought. How does ethical design fit into what you guys do at Civilization? I want to talk about the show for one second. Let's do it. That That show was a dream in itself. I want to come back to the ethics and design question, of course, because that show actually for me, also showed the power of design. I'm not taking credit for that show. That show was... To be fair, <laughs> you guys hosted it, made it the first show in your space. There is a, a lot of authority in curation, and you use that authority in a really, really positive way. So, Thank you. Yeah. It's my favorite thing to do right now, is cur- curation. So like most of the things in my life, as, as these stories are revealing, we were looking for a new space. So we were on Capitol Hill for, we moved out of the dance studio and we were above Rudy's and Stumptown for like eight years. Loved that space. Totally loved it. Wanted to expand in that space, but so did my neighbors. <laughs> and they beat us to the punch and good for them because it was, it was meant to be. So we were looking for space and looking for space. And the current climate that the real estate market is, yeah. is, whew. but we got this lead on uh, Rock LaRue gallery. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Let's check that out. So I check it out. And the landlord was great. He was like, are you an arts organization? No, we're a design organization. Will you have a gallery? Do we need to have a gallery? I only rent to people with galleries. You got it. We have a gallery. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, I'll get back to you. 
didn't hear from him. Wrote him like a long letter, like, "Oh, please, like this is be this would be like our future home." Blah blah blah. Like, you do this, we yeah. do this. I'm just pulling out the punches. Like, I, I usually don't. You know, it's just like we, you know, we work on these cause campaigns. We do this stuff. Like, we're good for the community. You know, <laughs> just like try clean. Pulled out those old telemarketing skills. Yeah, I did. Yeah, totally. I did. I was not letting it. I was answering questions with questions. I was doing all by the book with telemarketing. Um, what do you think we do? <laughs> and he finally said, yes. And, uh, oh, no, we got to do a gallery. And then at the same time, this is like right during the election. All right. Let's think about it. Next week, Trump wins. Yeah. We're like, what are we going to do about this? Mm-hmm. Oh, and we got a gallery. And Milton Glaser our ultimate design hero, mm-hmm. one of, uh, has his book, Design Descent, from 2004. And we're like, this book's amazing. And Molly, our partnership coordinator, curator as well, extraordinaire, reaches out. So Milton Glade just emails him, hey, want to do this show? <laughs> and email gets forwarded and forwarded and forwarded. And the, the whole School of Visual Concepts had the, had the show in the basement they didn't know if they had it or not. Right. We think we have the show in the basement. We don't know. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, long story short, it ends up. And uh, we asked and got the like permission, which was like the greatest honor to like use half of the show and then add half to it. It was amazing uh, to see the power of this work up on these walls and to recontextualize it from topic to timeline. That's what we did in the show. So it was, here you go. 1968 was this quintessential moment for protests. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Martin Luther King being assassinated. You have the Black Panthers Party being under attack, the Mexico 68 riots and the slaying of people there. In Europe, you have the Situationists. In the Netherlands, you have Provo trying to provoke the police, Situationists trying to provoke the police. It's just like this global uproar of protest. It was this zeitgeist of protest. You what know, was fascinating about that show was that there was there were examples from every era. Right. So if you weren't alive like me in 68, you and whomever, and there were people from all ages there, you could see one that connected with your youth or you grew up with that cause and saw that lineage and how it carried through history. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. No, absolutely. It was this lineage of things. So like, you know, that's one wall, the 68, but then you get, you know, in the seventies and then the eighties and then, you know, today And really, we didn't even realize this till it was all hung. It was like, we're still fighting for the same shit as day one and before. So it's, uh, it was, yeah, it was immensely powerful. It was immensely powerful to work in our new studio with that, to walk into work every day with that. And we left it up for, because we didn't have another show. <laughs> so we <laughs> left it up for way too long. It was up for like a, almost a year, not quite. But to answer your question about, you know. To going back to what I asked before, how does ethics play a role in the way you do what you do at Civilization? Ethics is a tricky topic. It's extremely nuanced, but let's just talk in broad strokes about design. From my perspective, I had never put design and ethics in the same box in my head psychologically. I thought a lot about both of them, but very, very separately. When I'm sitting and drawing, I'm thinking about the needs of my client. I'm thinking about what looks really good and thinking about I enjoy sketching. So I'm thinking about what makes me happy. But the real world consequences of the choices I'm making during those early abstract moments rarely occurred to me. I think a lot more about it now, but 
I think it's an interesting thing to talk about and to break down a little bit and how that translates to all kinds of different creative pursuits, not just architecture or graphics. Well, and to drop another thing into that same bucket while we while we field these questions so often with design talking about it in, in you know like big picture concept design stuff you also have the issue of ego here at board we we separate ego from what we do we take that out of the picture constant challenge i think for a lot of people to design without ego i'm guessing here and i'm hoping that michael you can help me that it's hard to contextualize design when ethics are huge if you don't address the elephant in the room of the ego Yes. I mean, the, just to, to frame it, like ethics and ego, these are these things that we constantly wrestle with personally all the time. It's not ethical to go to the store and steal a loaf of bread. But if our family was starving. A couple things for us, how we deal with this is is on one level, as I love how you, you mentioned this at the opening of the show, design is a series of decisions, series of choices. And for us, our methodology, et cetera, is to make those decisions fueled by sustainability, meaning, and empathy. So that really helps the guardrails of the ego, et cetera, because, and I'll try to unpack those a little bit. Sustainability, as we all know, is like, you know, sustainable and green, eco, et cetera, but we don't just mean it that way. Sometimes it's better to make a physical product that people actually want to keep in their house, like packaging, for example, and maybe reuse it than it is to make a subpar packaging that's all super, super green and biodegradable. Maybe using really nice paper and cardstock with soy inks, etc. That is recyclable, but like isn't post-consumer could be the way the choice because we realize that the longevity of that product might be longer of that packaging. Web design is a big one with sustainability. We're realizing that in the current digital ecosystem, let's say, for lack of a better term, the the longevity of websites recently have not been long. Changing technology, responsive design, adaptive design, etc. And style, to be honest, oh, it's totally. become fashion almost. It's become fashion and it eats itself. Mm-hmm. So again, on that sustainability when thinking about web, there's one aspect of sustainability from an environmental perspective standpoint that our web developer Sean has looked into is like less pings from the server, which is awesome, less energy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. come on, that's a little yeah. like I love it, but it's it's not it, for us it's the longevity of like mm-hmm. how long can the site last? Because our clients that are nonprofits and doing good work, like we don't need we don't want them to have to invest budget in three years to do a new site. Let's mm-hmm. make something modular or flexible that's going to respond, not just responsive, but is built to last. As long as it can in that ecosystem. We don't know what that is. But we have sites that are, like, we were looking back the other day. It's like, damn, that site's five years old. Like, it's still holding up. You know, in terms of UX, I hate to go off on a tangent, but I I really want to mention this. Uh, A friend of mine who was a UX programmer worked for uh, a company Mm -hmm. and uh, (laughs) found uh, herself in a quandary when it came to uh, manipulating the user experience to take away their free will and shunt them towards where the company wanted their users to go versus where they actually could find the information they wanted. And the way in which the design, literally the way in which the design of the site manipulated literally free will in UX design. It was the first time I'd ever thought about ethics in UX design. Oh, yeah. Ethics in UX is a, is a huge 
quandary. Mm. One that I don't necessarily might not be the expert to speak to of this, but from my perspective of it is you have the ability to tell a story. UX is a little to me in my head, a little bit like a video game. The creator of that video game puts what level goes next and how, how to increase the challenge of that level. So if you apply story into that with the website, you kind of control the, the narrative. You give the user the flexibility to access any point of that, but you, you're you telling the story. Right. There's power in that and maybe ethics in that, yeah. but there's also amazing opportunities in that. And a lot of our work, a lot of our web work, some of the decisions made is really just exposing things. Like our navigations are usually sitemaps. At least in, in our work, we find that digital experiences and physical experiences, there is so much more in common than a lot of people think. Absolutely. And I'm sure you're very familiar with this. We cross those boundaries all the time. And people are always blown away when they, they say, why, well, what in the world does a degree in architecture have to do with mm-hmm. building digital experiences? And, and we're always like, well, everything, mm-hmm. everything. And so... I, I guess, Charles, I'm wondering if, if somebody asked you, I know we're not exactly designing museums right now or something, but say let's say we had a museum project and the client hired us to design the museum. At the same time, we, you know, we have a duty to the museum foundation or whoever hired us, right? But we also have a duty to the, to the visitors to the museum, right? And so we are controlling and influencing and sculpting their entire experience with this physical architectural space, both to serve the whoever is in charge of the museum and, and meet their goals for who comes through, but also their goals are going to be met by the people that are coming in, the visitors, if their experience goes well and how we cater, how they respond, and how they move, and how they react to the different spaces. I mean, they serve each other, really. You need both to work, and, and they really don't exist without each other. But how does ethics play into that? Are we being unethical by manipulating people and how they move through spaces, or are we helping them? Yeah, well, it's funny. When I think about this, I think about asking yourself hard questions. And Michael, correct me if I'm wrong or if you think differently, but at times it can get overwhelming to serve many masters. And what I mean by that is, okay, am I serving my client? Am I serving the visitors to this museum? Am I serving the birds? Am I serving the environment? Am I serving the wind patterns? Am I serving, oh man, is everything locally sourced? Next thing you know, you're kind of losing your mind a little bit. You got served. (laughs) Exactly. But, But if you hold yourself to a set of values, really, am I making the world better? Am I being wasteful? Or whatever your values are, if you're consistent about them, and if you really hold yourself to them, you have a chance of maybe doing something that is a net positive for the world. Absolutely. To jump in on that, I think it's from that specific example, it's thinking about those decisions fueled in empathy. Because then it's thinking about how people use it. Because ultimately, you want the... um, patron of the museum to have the best experience as possible. So from empathetic moves, we think about how is this going to resonate with people? How is it people are going to view it? What height is the pieces hung at? Is it accessible for everyone? How do people that can't hear experience this? How do people who can't see experience this? How do children experience this? How do people in wheelchairs experience this? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then how do average people experience this? And is it meaningful to them? And does it make connections? And is it not a waste of time? And you can't please everybody all the time, but hopefully you can make an impact. You end up in quandaries. You end up with, oh, following this ethical path leads to X. 
X is mutually exclusive with Y, which is achieving a client's goal or achieving a goal that follows a different ethical path. And then it's spiders. And and maybe yeah. museums, we accidentally created this little quandary for ourselves. Maybe museum <laughs> was not the best example because there's not a ton of museums out there to serve malicious purposes, right? <laughs> what we, what we but really the Museum need of is Malicious a, Purposes, however. <laughs> which is probably really interesting. I would love to go to that museum. Personally. But, but it, so maybe it comes down to... Uh, I mean, what's happening in this scenario is that but the, the interests of the owners of the museum are not divergent, really, from the patrons of the museum, because ultimately the satisfaction right, right. of the patrons... Will... They're signing on for an experience, right. and if, so, if that experience is to be made to feel unpleasant, that's part of it, typically. So ethically, you could avoid having situations where you are impacting the people that visit a space or visit a website negatively by making sure that you're not engaging in hiring or you know taking on work from somebody that you disagree with mm-hmm. what their goal ethical goals are right you can avoid the situation in theory if you aren't working on projects that you know don't align with your values that's absolutely true and that's like the fundamental about our studio is we only work with partners clients organizations that we have a shared ethos Ethos is the root of ethics. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, <laughs> for all you etymology nerds out there, <laughs> high five. But, but again, it's very nuanced. So, like, you know, I'm not gonna say that all my clients see the world exactly how I do because they, I hope they don't. And hopefully, together, we can come to a point that, you know, does little harm or no harm is the ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, make designs that are going to connect with people and not throw away and not add to the bombardment of noise we're faced with from a visual communication level. No, I'm glad you brought up that making the choice to work with other organizations that have similar values seems to be, sometimes it's an expensive choice, but it seems to be one of the easier choices. I want to comment on that. So people have said that to me over the years, and many people have said that's a really privileged place to be, and Mm. I don't disagree with that. People have called me out in audiences of toxic panels, et cetera, and I... Mm -hmm. And I've thought about this a lot over the years, and uh, it is a privilege to do that, but it's also having the courage to do that. To quote Massimo Vanelli, the project you're working on right now will lead you to the next project. Mm-hmm. So if the project you're working on right now might be for a nonprofit that doesn't necessarily have the market value rates, it might lead to another one of those that might have a little more mm-hmm. or not. There's also ways to balance things. Like there's ethical companies that sell things. <laughs> so like that, Boom. right? The listeners like, just lost right, their mind. Right. No, Wait, but what? It, it's funny to they, me when they people take think, a profit on an exchange of goods and services. Unsubscribe. They're, they're, you know, I get that a lot, and it's like you know we work with like slow fashion companies. Still selling a product. There's also big nonprofits in the world that are actually making extreme amounts of change. And they have a yeah, lot of funding. I think it's important like, to they, note that there's honor in the effort. Like nobody's getting it right. Nobody's getting it perfect. But there is so much honor in the effort. And to make the effort, you have to state that's what you're trying to do. And that's going to expose you to people that can pick you apart if they want to. And it's so much easier to just either do it quietly, which means no one else is going to aspire to do the same, or to not do it at all, which both seem like worse 
options to me. What is your opinion about the need for a Hippocratic Oath for design? You know, first, do no harm. I care so much about it that we started, we had a workshop during the Design of Descent show that was led by two um, students out of Portland State University that had people, um, the first part of the session was to talk about Hippocratic Oaths and Manifestos, and to uh, the second was to create one. Um, the first piece in Design of Descent was on the timeline was very intentional. It was by Ken Garland, First Things First Manifesto in 1964. Ken Garland, sorry to nerd out here. Ken Garland is one of my favorite designers uh, from London, and he actually um, worked on the uh, campaign for nuclear disarmament, which mm. invented the peace sign, was their logo. He didn't do that. That was Gerald Holden. But he, no <laughs> but yeah, he took it and ran with it. And actually, yeah, so... Um, so he created a manifesto that was basically at the time 64, like we can use our talents, we can stop selling soap and blah, blah, blah. Like, and we <laughs> yeah. can, and we can, you know, use it for social good. And, and, and that manifesto rings so true today. So I absolutely agree with that. Again, that's a nuanced thing, but broad strokes, I think it should be and could be done. I completely agree. <laughs> we need to make it a little easier Everybody has to almost reinvent the wheel right now when it comes to integrating ethics into a design process. The design process is a unique snowflake in and of itself, depending on what kind of firm you run and what kind of product you make. Taking that weight off of the shoulders of designers who want to do that, but either don't have the time, don't have the ability right now or the bandwidth to really like sit down and pull apart all of their psychology and the brass tacks of how they do what they do. Not everybody wants to go down that road. They're like, we do this one thing. We just want to do it well. It'd be great if there were an easier way to do that ethically. But until we figure that out, we're just going to do X. If that were made e easier for someone by like, look, a bunch of very, very smart people sat down and thought about a way in which we could all do a thing smarter and they were able to just subscribe to it and integrate it, I think that would be a wholly, amazingly positive thing for the community. And that happened with the Bauhaus. Interesting. I mean, seriously, like yeah. things happen in these times of like these new revolutions. And I don't want to get all <laughs> revolutionary on us, but... Uh, Michael's putting a bandana on right yeah. now. <laughs> but maybe, <laughs> maybe it's time to take a look at where we're at with culture, where we're at in society, where we're at, and maybe there's new forms of making. And, you know, as the Bauhaus took the industrial revolution and put, put some beauty to it and some principles and some ethics, yeah. maybe we need to do that in the digital age. Wow. There's like such a can of worms that could be opened by that. Cause like now I'm thinking about all the different influences of the Bauhaus and what it came to represent later. Yes. And, uh, and I'm just like, Oof, whoa, that's heavy. Because like the Bauhaus came to represent all the design ideals that were largely consumed by initially by public architecture, but eventually by very, very rich and privileged individuals. Well, and that's also a very American way. When we it had sure a, is, yeah. when we had experimental jet set up for our design lecture series, you know, Helvetica came up. We right. started talking about Helvetica. Helvetica to them was the public. Right. It was it's the typeface for the people. Right. Helvetica in America is the typeface for the corporation, mm -hmm. and it's a very different context. I think modernism is very is very um, 
There's many views on that. Again, I might not be the best person to speak of modernism. Should have Gabriel here, our creative director. He can definitely articulate that much better. But yeah. I think from a from a really oversimplified, really boiled down way, like America has a way of <laughs> extracting and so recontextualizing. Up, this is and, no, so totally so interesting. Do you think there is an aesthetic that evokes ethics? I that's a tricky one. I've been reading a lot about the aesthetics of of protests, the art of the resistance. No, I don't think ethics is an aesthetic. Because there are, and it's funny, we had a, a podcast with uh, Andrea Lexen, who I know you know, who is a typeface designer, where we talked about how much just a simple switch in typeface to the same word can convey a completely different message. Well, the uh, thing is, ethics is an emotion. It's That's the thing. Like, typefaces like, can change perception. Mm-hmm. And this is where it all loops together, right? So you can use these as designers. We have lots of power to influence the way people experience things, whether we're talking about a typeface or a space or a website or, you know, the, any, any of these things. We're wielding the power of influence. A lot of times the people that are experiencing these things aren't aware that they are being influenced by mm-hmm. the design. Right. Mm-hmm. But so so then you then you introduce that idea. So if you're going to be influencing people without them realizing that you are influencing them, mm-hmm. that's where the ethics comes in. Right. Yep. What are what are the means to your end there? Yeah, what are yeah. you doing? You know, my head's exploding a little bit because when you mentioned Helvetica, I thought of I was thinking of, OK, typefaces, typefaces, egalitarian typefaces in the United States. And I thought of the American road system mm-hmm. and how all the signs use, I don't know what the typeface is, I forget it. It's yeah, use the same typeface and it. you traveled on Greyhound when you had very little money and a lot of people with very little money still have access to this wondrous network of travel. And that's something that's very unique to America. And I just start to wonder if there isn't. Like, that's interesting that Bauhaus was able to discern something that was, this is design of the people for the people. I wonder if there is something in America that could be equivalent. I don't know. To your point about the power, all the different fields of design have power and power to change perception. And I think that's amazing. And, and it's, it's just mind blowing when you start to think about like how we can all connect to the symbology or these these things are symbology in architecture. There's symbology across all design, like, and it starts to have this amazing ability to amplify a message or reframe a conversation, especially in visual communication. Back to the design set, like that's what those things are doing. Is essentially helping to create perception, and creating perception with ethics has significant consequences. The Nazis were amazing at creating visually communicating and creating perception maybe not so great but some examples throughout history that are good is the nuclear disarmament campaign we talked about but also act up grand fury 80s AIDS crisis they come out reclaim the nazis pink triangle Mm -hmm. turn it on upside or turn it right side up so it's pointing forward and then silence equals death just it was the power of the people but the people had an identity so like Design can create, can bring people together, create this community. From that community, it inspires action. From that action, there's identity and it creates more community. Or there's an identity created, it creates a connection, creates community, 
turns into action and brings it back. And architecture can do that with spaces. I think the Seattle Public Library is a perfect example of architecture bringing people together. I think there are, um, in every form of design, that can happen. Like you can create connections with people and they can have a place or an identity. And that's, in turn, can change people's perception. So in the time we live in, I think it is our responsibility as designers to start thinking about that, to think about how we can bring like-minded people together to create connection, community, turn that community into action. Thank you so much for coming and sitting with us, Michael. Yeah, thank this you. This was awesome. Cool. Uh, and actually, I'm going to ask you on the show. You should definitely come back. There's just so many other things, other things we need to say and talk about. The subject could definitely go on. Sure, anytime. Awesome. Thank you very much for listening. Our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our social media for that. It will be held here at Board of Mellow on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter or the blog on boardofmellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.